few years ago, I uh, come across a, um, a story about a, a young woman who, uh, in her mid-twenties, was quite disillusioned. And she said this, I was promised an awesome life. Hard not to read into that statement a sense of entitlement. This uh, young woman had uh, grown up in a Christian family. She had gone to church, youth group, went to a Christian school. She was attractive, popular, good at schoolwork, good at sport. So what happened to make her cry out, I was promised an awesome life? Well, she was just crushed by the ordinariness of life. It's not that uncommon. Sometimes we think that life ought to be more awesome than what it is. I remember coming to the realisation as a young person myself that I wasn't that special. I was ordinary like most of us. And the paradox is that most of us are ordinary, although we've been given special gifts by God. I remember a child psychologist, James Dobson, saying, when a young couple find out they're pregnant, they're going to have a baby, they pray that the baby will be normal. But when it's born, normal will never be good enough. Now, it's fine to have aspirations and have aspirations for our children. But we need to be careful we don't build into them a sense of entitlement. I think it's better to say to our kids, seek God and his kingdom first and then see what God does with your life. See the amazing things beyond your expectations that God will do in your life. Find the good works that God has prepared beforehand for you to do and joyfully do them. Paul, who wrote this letter to the Philippians that we're looking at today, just a few verses, Paul did have an awesome life. But it wasn't the sort of awesomeness that most of us aspire to. He was called to be a slave of Jesus. He was called to suffer for Jesus as he spread the good news amongst the non-Jewish people. I would say after Jesus, Paul was probably the most influential person who ever lived but he saw himself the worst sinner who ever lived. He had no sense of entitlement. In fact, he lost his sense of entitlement, if he ever had it, when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. When he met the Jesus who was entitled to everything, all glory, all honour, all praise, and yet this Jesus gave it all up for us. And Paul talks about the secret of contentment. Well, how do we 
experience contentment in this life. In this age of entitlement, in this age where there is an industry that's devoted to bringing about discontent that's called advertising, in an age of social media that presents itself, promotes itself and says, look at my life, my life's great, yours, not so much. How do we find contentment? And throw into that COVID. How do we find contentment? Well, before we look at that, I want to address three misconceptions about contentment. First of all, it's not about our natural disposition. It's not about just having a stiff, stiff upper lip. Paul was neither phlegmatic in temperament, nor was he British in culture. Pretending that hardships don't affect us and just gritting our teeth and moving forward is not the same as Christian contentment. Secondly, it's not incompatible with contentment to groan to God but not to grumble. And there is a difference. In Romans 8, verse 22, we read this. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. And not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. So who's groaning here? It's the creation. It's us as Christians in a fallen world. And it's God in the Holy Spirit who groans on our behalf. It's not wrong to cry out to God in our groans and in our suffering. Psalms are full of calling out to God, how long, God? I'm suffering. I'm in need. I'm in distress. Life is difficult. Even Jesus himself cried out to his father, it's possible, take this cup from me. He groaned in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, please take it away, yet not my will but yours be done. And Paul, the writer of this letter, talks in another place about having a thorn in the flesh, something that affected him, something that was hard, something that was irritating. We don't know what it was, but he prayed three times, please take it away. And the answer he got was, my grace is sufficient. And he had to live with it. And neither is it wrong to seek relief and comfort from our friends. 
and to tell them how we're feeling, to tell them how we are affected by the vagaries of life. And as friends come to us, it's not our job to say to them, just be content. We need to share in their pain and their struggles and help them reach contentment in that situation. And it's not wrong to seek relief and justice for others. In fact, it's wrong not to. We can't just say to someone who's suffering, oh, just be content. No, we need to seek to redress injustices and suffering. And it's not wrong to not be content and stay in an abusive and unsafe situation. But it is wrong to only groan and not rejoice as well. This whole letter of the Philippians, Paul constantly says, rejoice, 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 rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in all circumstances. Christians are people who groan and rejoice. And it is wrong to grumble. To grumble about God's wisdom and his goodness. And often that's shown in how we think about our leaders. We may not overtly grumble about God, but we do that indirectly towards the leaders that God has placed over us. <clears throat> and the third misconception is that it's not only want that can cause discontent. Paul said that he'd learnt to be content in need, in want, and in plenty, in abundance. We need to find contentment in abundance as well as in need. I guess it's obvious the challenge to contentment when we don't have enough. But we also need to know contentment when we have more than enough. It's a challenge to contentment because of the whole range of choices, because of the increase in responsibility, the more we have, and because of the danger that's associated with having abundance. Having abundance can cause us to focus too much on what we have and the fear of losing it. Having abundance can cause us to focus on things rather than on God himself. Having abundance is a challenge. It's a danger. A friend of mine did some research on lottery winners and he was amazed to find well, perhaps he wasn't being amazed. I think he expected this. But the findings were amazing that very, very few people who had won millions were content, were happy. In fact, he found just the opposite. They declined in their happiness 
and in their contentment. Well, having looked at those uh, misconceptions about contentment, let's now get back to the passage. In the passage, Paul says in verse 10, and we're just looking at three verses, Paul says in verse 10, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. What's the situation here? Well, Paul was in prison and he receives a gift. But we see in this passage that Paul appreciated the giver over the gift. Paul was in lockdown. Paul was in lockdown in Rome. He was under house arrest for two years. If you ever go overseas again, and if you ever get to Rome and you do a guided tour, you will probably be shown a house. And the guide will tell you, this is the house that Paul lived in. And I assume it's the house where Paul was under house arrest. Paul was in lockdown. But he saw it as an opportunity to write letters and to witness to his captors. And one of the letters he wrote was this letter to the Philippians, the Christians who lived in the Macedonian city of Philippi. And he received a gift from them. And it almost seems as if Paul was saying when he got the gift, oh, I don't need it. There's nothing worse than thinking about a gift to give to somebody and, and you give it to them and they just don't want it, don't need it. And you've gone to all this trouble. But it wasn't like that with Paul. Um, it's not that he didn't appreciate having it, but he appreciated the giver more. Uh, he said in verse 11, I'm not saying this because I am in need. Um, and in verse 17, we read later on in the passage that Paul was saying he didn't really desire the gift so much as he desired that it would be a blessing to them, the giver. And I think that that's one of the secrets that Paul has discovered about contentment. Paul valued relationship more than getting the things that he thought he wanted and needed. It was relationships that he valued with God and his people. I rejoice greatly that you, my fellow Christians, brothers and sisters, have thought of me in my time of need. Not that I really need it, is what Paul's saying. He's using it as an opportunity not to be ungrateful, but as an opportunity to teach these Philippian Christians about contentment and about what Paul was experiencing as he trusted God. 
recently, a couple of weeks ago, in fact, I um, had a phone call from my seven-year-old granddaughter who was doing a survey from school at home, obviously. Um, and one of the and, and the teacher had given a assignment to the children to find out what life was like in the olden days. So she was surveying, interviewing me. And one of the questions she asked was, did you have to walk to school through the snow in bare feet? Now, I don't know whether the teacher was just becoming a bit desperate for something to put in the assignment at this stage or whether her father had slipped in that question. But I replied, no, we, we didn't get a lot of snow in Westmead and I did have a pair of shoes. But as I thought about my childhood, I was reminded of something my father used to always say. We, we had a pretty modest upbringing. We were well fed and well clothed, but we didn't have a lot of luxuries. I think we were the last house in the street to have TV. We didn't have a car until I was at least 17. And I don't think we had a phone, that's a landline, until I was about 20. We, we had a pretty modest lifestyle. And my father had a pretty ordinary job. But he used to say something quite often. He used to say, I am the richest man in Westmead. And the strange thing is that I didn't think that was a crazy thing to say. I knew instinctively what he meant. He was concentrating on the relationships in his life with his family, uh, with his church, and most importantly, with his God. He was a contented man and he saw himself as the richest man in Westmead. And I think here is a great clue to the basis for Paul's contentment. His priority was on the relationships with God and his people. His circumstances did not change the most precious thing in his life. That is his relationship to God. Want and need did not mean that God loved him less. Plenty and abundance did not mean that God loved him more. He had come to understand that all things that God allows to come upon us become good from the loving hand of God for Christians. And finally, Paul says that we have to learn it. Paul says, I have learnt it. I have learnt to be content in whatever the circumstances. We see in the second part of verse 11, I have learnt 
to be content. Now, you can read about it. In fact, I have been reading about contentment. This book here is a rewrite of a book that's been written in 1645 um, by a man who was a congregational Puritan, a man called Jeremiah Burroughs, and he meditates on contentment. And it's the work of nine sermons on contentment. And it's an exhaustive look at the subject of contentment. It's very helpful. One of the interesting things about reading this book, the context was the plague in London. Interesting. But reading sometimes can be a second-hand experience. It's better that we learn it personally. Paul says, I have learnt to be content in whatever circumstances. We need to enter into God's school to learn contentment. And God as a teacher uses many methods, but I'll just pick up two methods and talk about them for a little while. Using an educational illustration. God as teacher uses direct instruction and he uses discovery learning. First of all, direct instruction. God in his word teaches us truth. He gives us direct instruction that we need to listen to and learn from. And the very, very first thing, Christianity 101, the alphabet, learning your numbers, the very, very first thing that you need to learn is about entitlement. What are you entitled to? You and I are entitled to God's judgment. That's where it begins. We never learn contentment unless we learn that first lesson that we are entitled to judgment. But in God's riches and mercy and grace, he gives us life. He gives us his riches. He gives us everything. If you haven't learnt that lesson, then you can't go on in the school to learn more lessons. You're entitled to judgment. And because of Jesus, you get life and blessing and riches and eternal security. Secondly, and I'm just talking about three pieces of direct instruction. There are millions, but just three. The second one is God is in control. Whatever happens, God is in control. And the Bible is just full of truth and instruction about God being constantly in control. He hasn't dropped the ball. 
He hasn't stopped thinking about us or caring about us. He is in control. So Paul can say in verse 19, my God will meet all your needs. He is in control. Trust him. And the third direct instruction from God that I think is pertinent is that we will have trials. We will have difficulties. We will have hardships. We will suffer. Uh, when we sign up to become a Christian, uh, there's not this fine print or terms and conditions that are said very quickly, but it's up front and centre. When you become a Christian, you need to deny yourself, take up a cross and follow the way Jesus went and be prepared to suffer for the things that he suffered for. But more than that, in these trials, in these difficulties, God will be with you and God will bring good out of it. God will use everything for his purposes, for his glory and for our ultimate good. That's the third direct instruction from God. And in discovery learning, <clears throat> the second method that we're talking about in God's school that God uses to teach us contentment, the experiences and the situations that he sets up for us to learn for ourselves, contentment. And firstly, God will take us through experiences and allow things to happen to us and test us so we can prove his trustworthiness. And that's something we learn as we follow him in life. And he uses that for our learning as a discovery in these situations. The second way he uses discovery learning is to teach us over time through life's up and downs the one necessary thing is knowing God. He'll show us many lovely things, many nice things, many important things, but he will show us over and over again the one necessary thing is knowing God. And he will show us in the plethora of all the nice things in the world that nothing will truly satisfy us apart from himself. When Martha, the sister of Lazarus, came to Jesus and said, look, tell Mary to help me do all these things I'm doing. I'm working hard in the kitchen. Jesus said to Martha, you are worried and distracted about many things, but there's only one thing that's necessary. That one thing was to follow and to learn from God, to follow and to learn from Jesus, to know him is the one necessary thing. 
And the third discovery learning situation towards contentment is seeing over time good come out of evil. As you continue to trust and follow Jesus, you will see, not every time, but many times you'll see that out of bad things, out of difficult things, out of even tragic things, God brings good outcomes. God specialises in bringing good out of evil. And the great example, of course, is the cross, where the worst thing brought about the best thing. And as you meditate upon God's direct instruction, as you think about these things going through life, going through the experiences that come your way, the ups and downs of life, the good times, the bad times, the need and the plenty, you will begin to develop contentment. You will be renewing your mind and quietening your heart as you apply the learning to your heart and mind. As you continue to abide in Jesus through his word. And Jesus said in those words from John, Apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing of eternal spiritual value, nothing important or necessary you can do apart from me. And as you abide in his word, his promises, his direct instructions, as you prove them in your life and experiences through discovery learning, the Holy Spirit will be changing your mindset towards contentment. The final verse in this passage is, is very well known. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. The older version used to be, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And often that's been lifted out of its context and used almost as a slogan or motto for awesome human invincibility. I can do all things through Christ. But the emphasis should be the other way around. Through Christ and only through Christ can I do all the things that God calls me to. Can I do all the things that God wants me to? Can I endure and rejoice in all the situations that God allows to come my way? Only through Christ I can do these things.
I want to conclude by asking you four questions for you to consider. Are you learning contentment? Are you seeking to honour God in whatever circumstances he places you in or allows to come upon you? Are you discerning day by day the necessary from the nice? And are you drawing strength day by day from Jesus? Through him, you can do all these things. I want to finish with a prayer uh, or a paraphrase of a prayer that was written by a man called Reinhard Niebuhr. And you will recognise the first part of this prayer, but perhaps not the second part. Let me pray. Dear Lord, give us grace to accept with contentment the things that cannot be changed. Courage to change the things which should be changed and wisdom to distinguish the one from the other. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right as we surrender to your will so that we may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. In Jesus' name, amen.